Hello and welcome to Dead Ideas in Teaching and Learning, a higher education podcast from the Center for Teaching and Learning at Columbia. I'm Katherine Ross, the Center's Executive Director. Let's get started. I'm speaking remotely today with Drs. Aaron Pallas and Anna Newman. Anna Newman is a professor of higher education at Teachers College, Columbia University, where she conducts research on college and university teaching, professors' intellectual careers, and research methods. Aaron Pallas is the Arthur I. Gates Professor of Sociology and Education at Teachers College, where he also chairs the Department of Education Policy and Social Analysis. He studies the distribution of school resources, school and teacher accountability systems, and how schooling shapes people's lives. Welcome to our Dead Ideas podcast, Anna and Erin. Happy to be here. We're delighted to be here. So I'm just going to set the stage a bit for our listeners. Um, Anna and Erin's book, Convergent Teaching, was published in December 2019, and I just happened to learn about it from Aaron, with whom I was working on a subcommittee exploring issues in the evaluation of teaching in higher education. Aaron offered a chapter from his book to the subcommittee as a resource so we could understand what the problems are with how teaching is evaluated in the academy. But I realized when I saw the book, that this whole book is dedicated to upending dead ideas about undergraduate teaching in higher education. So I invited Aaron and Anna to do this podcast. I would just love it if you could give our listeners a brief overview of the vast terrain that is covered in your book, since we won't have time to delve into every part of it in this very brief podcast conversation. Well, I appreciate your calling it a vast terrain. Um, The book does have three major components. And the first one tries to make a case for why we should care about undergraduate teaching improvement. And it begins with the idea that there's a crisis in American higher education, or at the very least, an ambivalence about it in in the eyes of the American public. Uh, Whereas higher education historically has been seen as the engine for the American dream, uh, and there continues to be high demand for higher education, Uh, there's ambivalence about whether a college education pays off in the way that it historically has with a a secure and predictable future, particularly in the context of a changing economy with fewer and fewer things that we can count on. The labor market is changing, costs and affordability are persistent worries, And we don't always know that much about what students are actually learning in college. So there's a fair amount of concern about higher education and some refer to it as a crisis. And that's led to a number of reform perspectives, ways of thinking about what to do with higher education. Um, One which we call um, uh, powering it up, uh, a notion that the future of higher education hinges on the harnessing of big data and technological tools to improve uh, learning in in higher education. Um, And it's a very optimistic view and we might eventually get to that point, but I think we're nowhere near it at the time uh, being. 
It, it unfortunately uh, sounds a little bit too much like pop neuroscience for now. Um, and uh, although the pandemic has certainly uh, put a wrench in everything, uh, historically, uh, online uh, courses and programs have not necessarily benefited the most vulnerable populations of students um, and, and may have be just as expensive as, as traditional face-to-face -face education. There's another perspective, which we call blow it up, um, that argues that uh, employers and students should bypass higher education completely, um, in part because there's so little evidence that students learn important stuff in college. Um, and it's a perspective that has a relatively narrow focus on the economic value of a higher education. Um, and, and not surprisingly, uh, that's resulted in a fair amount of pushback among those who see a broader purpose to higher education than simply preparing young people for work. And we call that the, the stay the course perspective, defenders of colleges and universities as they currently exist to champion liberal education, uh, which inspires critical thinking and the life of the mind. Um, but what we note is that all three of these perspectives, power it up, blow it up, and stay the course, don't talk about college teaching. And we see college teaching as the heart of the education enterprise. Um, and we know that there's good evidence that college teaching matters in terms of the benefits for what students uh, experience, what they learn as a result of good college teaching. So the middle third of the book then develops a particular approach to good college teaching that we call convergent teaching. Um, and we'll have more to say about that, but there are three important pedagogical moves in convergent teaching that we devote attention to. Targeting, uh, the idea of carving out the specific subject matter that is to be learned that is appropriate for a given course. Uh, surfacing, uh, an approach that draws on students' prior knowledge and experience, both academic and non-academic, and navigating the work that instructors do to help students move from what they already know to where they need to get to. And the final third of the book deals with uh, our sense of the kinds of policies and practices at the campus level and beyond to improve undergraduate teaching. Great, thank you for that overview and particularly for calling out the sort of three camps that are talking about higher education, um, the powering it up group, the staying the course group and the blow it up group. And it was truly a revelation for me when I was reading your book, when you named the fact that all of this talk that you describe in your book about higher education and what it should be and what it shouldn't be, um, who it helps, who it doesn't help. All of that talk did ne never ever mentions teaching. When people talk about innovation, they don't talk about teaching. They talk about technology or some new thing, right? And so I thought that was just so powerful. I see this omission as a very glaring one in the conversations that I've heard in, for example, leadership development programs in higher education or in conversations about technology. I wondered if you could just maybe dive a little deeper into why it's so important that teaching be in those conversations. 
I'll respond to to that. Um, uh, one of the reasons I think that it is important for uh, teaching to be in the conversation is that you, there's not much you can do about making things better if you don't name the problem in the first place. And one of my concerns is that uh, teaching is something that we take for granted. Uh, we assume that uh, teachers know how to teach. Uh, we assume that even non-teachers know something about teaching and know the difference between teaching that helps students learn and teaching that doesn't help students uh, learn. Now, you know, why, why is that? Um, uh, interestingly, I think uh, the uh, development of a mass education system has created a situation where so many of us, actually all of us, uh, are in effect exposed to teaching uh, from the time that we are very you know, young children until later on, at least in our society, at least in the United States. And uh, given that exposure, I do think that we often forget uh, that there really is something to teaching, uh, that it is not something that people are necessarily born knowing how, how to do. And so, uh, you know, the way I see this is that there's not very much we can do about teaching, about improving teaching, about elaborating on it, um, making it more meaningful, improving it, unless we give it a name. And uh, that really is why I think that calling this out, um, making the invisible visible, the, uh, the inaudible audible, uh, by giving it a name is so important. That's very powerful. Thank you for that, Anna. Um, I think that that leads us right into the next question that I wanted to ask you, which is more about something Erin briefly mentioned in the overview um, about your framework of convergent teaching. Uh, and I think it might be a nice point in this conversation to go a little deeper into that. If you could, um, I have a quote from your book where you uh, you talk about your framework and you talk about how it addresses, and I quote here, the totality of what teachers think and do to support students' learning as they encounter and engage with new academic ideas in the context of their prior knowledge and experience, end of quote. So I, I will turn it back over to you to make this part of it more visible as well for our listeners. Um, I, I will try to, I will tackle that one um, as well. Uh, again, um, teaching isn't something that one just stands up and does naturally. And I'm always taken by the idea when somebody says, I teach, I'm a teacher, that people immediately in their minds see someone in front of a classroom, um, um, you know, being dramatic or reading from a book or in front of, um, you know, the pedestal uh, sort of holding things together. Uh, but, you know, that is not, that is just the top of the iceberg 
of uh, teaching. There's so very, very much, 90% of it is, is under the surface and unseen. It's unseen because a lot of it happened before the teaching. A lot of it happens after the teaching. And a lot of it is happening in the teacher's mind, to which uh, uh, one does not have ready access. In other words, teaching is both the doing of, uh, of, of it, the activity, the being in front of the class, the being with students, the being with a text, if you will. Um, but it is also about the homework and the thinking, especially the thinking that goes on both before and during the teaching itself. And we sometimes forget that. It doesn't come naturally. So with that, um, I, I wanted to talk just a little bit about the, the framework that uh, Aaron introduced. We think of, uh, of teaching and especially of good teaching. I mean, for one thing, it's, it's a very complex mass of activities and ways of thinking. So I, you know, there's a part of me that doesn't like reducing it to three things, but I sort of like to think of it as three moves that teachers can make or three movements in which they can, they can engage. And the first one is what I would call uh, targeting, uh, as Aaron mentioned earlier. When a teacher sits down, um, a professor and a college instructor sits down to uh, put together a syllabus or to prepare a unit or a lesson, the fact of the matter is that they cannot teach everything that a field offers. They cannot teach everything that they themselves know. And so one of the first questions is, what am I gonna teach? Uh, the question of what am I going to teach is incredibly important. Um, it's not your favorite idea and it's not necessarily what's in the textbook that you pulled off the shelf either. Targeting is identifying an idea in a field that in the words of Parker Palmer, can be something of a microcosm of the field. In other words, you don't wanna dump the whole body of knowledge on the student. What you might want to do instead is pick a particular idea that somehow holds in it some of the key ways of thinking or core ideas. We like to use the, the, the term core concepts that uh, are, uh, that are sort of foundational to the, to the kind of thinking that goes on in a field. So examples of uh, core concepts that we've seen instructors use. Um, Aaron uh, teaches statistics from, from time to time. And one of the core concepts that I have seen him use is the idea of the middle of a frequency distribution. If you come to understand middle, uh, you can understand a number of important ideas in descriptive statistics um, that, uh, that really are stepping stones. Uh, the idea of a core concept uh, is something of a stepping stone to other related ideas in the field. So part of it is just figuring out what the core concepts are that you might want to begin with. And that is part of what we mean by targeting. The flip side of targeting um, is the idea of surfacing, which in essence is 
identifying material in students' lives that in some way or another resonates with that core concept. The question becomes, what can you pull out uh, of what students already know personally, culturally, or otherwise that they are deeply familiar with that you can actually teach that mode of thinking in? The third step of convergent teaching or the third movement, so to speak, is um, in essence what I like to call, um, what we like to call navigating, uh, which in essence is bringing the two together. Now, navigating is in fact that part of, you know, a lot of it is public but that's not all there is to navigating either. Navigating is whatever a teacher needs to do, in essence, to bring students uh, to uh, an understanding of that core concept, usually walking them from their prior knowledge uh, to the core concept. Um, and I, you know, we could go on for another two hours about the kinds of things that go on in navigating, but one of our worries is that not enough attention has been given to part of that, uh, the work that's done underwater, behind the scenes, and that in fact cannot be seen. But that is not all that there is to teaching, of course. While you're doing you know, targeting, surfacing, and navigating, uh, which sounds, you know, it's all cognition. It's all the work of thinking. There are other things that will always come up. Students' emotions, uh, sometimes as you work with students' prior knowledge, some very uh, personal and emotional, personally meaningful things can be surfaced. And I see instructors as very involved in working with and through that. Um, there are issues of identity that get pulled out as well. So the last thing I want to do is reduce teaching to three movements. There's so much more that can come into play even beyond what I have mentioned. Indeed there is, but I love the way that your framework powerfully makes visible that invisible work. Uh, I think that was just extraordinary way to frame that work, name that work, and explain what it is to people who may not be in a teaching situation. I also really like your mention of the emotion coming into the classroom, as well as identity. And uh, I think, and we're going a little off script here, but I think that's a uh, a kind of powerful idea, um, sometimes a dead idea in higher ed, that those things don't belong in the classroom, right? That students just bring their cognition in and leave the emotions and identity outside. But I have seen over this past year with the pandemic, I've seen a, a kind of shift in that thinking broadly across the the context that I'm working in, where I think uh, more instructors became aware of how important it was to allow those emotions to be in the classroom and identities to be in the classroom and to deliberately, intentionally um, build community around the endeavor that everyone was involved in in these remote classes 
somehow the being remote made it more apparent and and the pandemic conditions as well, right? Made it more obvious that as instructors, we have to work with the whole student, not just the parts of the student that relate to cognition, right? I wondered if you've seen any kind of shift in that direction as well. Well, you know, I, I can speak primarily from my own teaching, and I and I, I will because I pay a lot of attention to it. There is no question, but that I've had to open up additional spaces uh, for students to talk about their their feelings, their fears, you know, moments of respite, moments of joy, but moments of real fear and concern and worry. Um, and um, you know, I guess one of the things that I want to I want to say that is so interesting and complicated with regard to teaching itself is that you know those moments of emotion, uh, deep feeling, matters of identity surround teaching. They infiltrate the classroom. They sit side by side subject matter, and teachers do have to work with them. Uh, what is also interesting is that there are emotional issues that sometimes have their source in the subject matter itself. A student may read a text that once they deeply get into it, understand connects to something in themselves that they had never thought about before. And so in addition to that happening, which happens even in the best of times, we have all the emotional work that needs to be done around COVID and uh, you know, very, you know, very difficult time politically and otherwise in this country as well uh, and in the world for that matter. Um, so uh, yes, I think teaching became something more over the past year and we may not have a full handle on it just yet. Thank you for sharing your story, Anna. I, I, I do want to say that um, in all this, the dead idea is that um, teaching is just standing up in front of the class and delivering knowledge. It is not. Appreciate that call out <laughs> very much. Erin, did you want to jump in here? I did. Uh, I do think that the positioning of students' emotions and identity um, and the shifts that we may have observed uh, during the pandemic are, are certainly partly attributable to uh, the pandemic itself and the way in which it has um, made students and their families so vulnerable, coupled with the rise of racialized violence that I think also has led to um, heightened concern about the well-being of, of minoritized students. Um, so those things I think are, are attributable to the times. It's an open question whether they will persist in how teachers incorporate students' emotions and identity alongside of subject matter once we return to whatever normal might consist of in, in the future. So I think this notion of sort of um, dead ideas in teaching, the idea that students' uh, identities, 
and, and personal lives don't matter is one of those dead ideas. And certainly Anna and I try to make the case that uh, through the lens of convergent teaching, those personal lives, those identities are both feeding into um, navigating, but also the product of navigating. They shape what students think they already know and how they come to understand themselves in the world. And they are the objects, occasionally uncomfortably so, of what teachers try to do in helping students move from what they already know to ideas that may in some cases be dissonant with their lives and identities. Oh, thank you for calling that out, Erin. That's, um, I think, a really important and insightful connection to um, add to this conversation. I appreciate that. So I just um, wanted to get a, at least one question in on this, the third sort of big part of your book. Um, there's a lot in there, but in one section, you offer institutional advice on six ways to improve the teaching practices of college faculty. Could you maybe share just the top two that you think would be most impactful? I, I mean, I picked out my personal favorite, which is raise the profile of undergraduate teaching and its centrality to the mission. But I'd love to hear from you both about what you would do first if you were in charge, if it was your world and you were remaking it, what, what would you do first or second? Well, I'm grateful that I'm not the ruler of the forest. Um, um, there are a lot of moving parts and sociologists often debate whether structure leads culture or culture leads structure. And it's clear that there needs to be both structural and cultural change. The kinds of structural changes that I think are important include well-staffed resources for improving teaching. And I'm sure Catherine's been waiting for me to say this, including centers for teaching and learning um, that can reach into the academic core. And you know, good centers for teaching and learning, I think are very important. They often are understaffed and peripheralized or not sort of central in the way that I think they can and should be. Uh, I think revisioning faculty recruitment and high stakes personnel processes to, to change the way we assess uh, faculty teaching. Um, and this is an issue that Catherine and I have in fact been working on, uh, thinking about ways to reduce reliance on student course ratings and to substitute other ways of assessing teaching performance for them durable representations of teaching practice that often involve peer review, that is the review of teaching peers. And finally, a kind of third structural um, issue is, as we've noted, many college teachers arrive in their college teaching classrooms without formal preparation on how to teach. And the question is, whose responsibility is that? And I think we can potentially argue that it is the responsibility of the graduate programs that are producing these college teachers, that professional development of college teachers ought to be built into graduate study, especially doctoral study, but there are plenty of college teachers who have master's degrees as well. And so we need to be mindful of the full spectrum of people who wind up teaching in college classrooms 
And there's certainly shared responsibility for professional development. The employing institutions also are responsible, but I think it should originate in the institutions and departments that are preparing college teachers to enter the college classroom. So those are some structural things. And culturally, I think I'm, I'm where you are. The notion of raising the profile of undergraduate teaching and its centrality to the mission is a cultural issue. Uh, and that's something that also can be worked on alongside of these structural changes. Great. Anna? You know, I, I think that um, my favorite strategy is the one that Aaron ended with, and that is uh, building teaching into all of graduate education. And I actually believe that all master's students and all doctoral students should be taught to teach. The fact of the matter is that there, uh, there are, I, I can't think of many professions where teaching isn't somehow built into it. You know, when I think about my doctor, for example, I want my doctor to be able to explain to me what's going on or what I should do or not do and why in a way that, that, that I understand. Or, you know, I think about a lawyer, I think about an architect, I think about, you know, any number of uh, professions that, that are, are out there. Uh, I also, you know, I, as part of that, I really believe that this is going to involve some deep uh, curricular changes in graduate school because it speaks to the question of where we find knowledge um, and how it can be represented. Both of those are pretty much set in stone currently. And I think that there's as much, call it scholarly inquiry that can feed teaching as feeding the production of um, uh, research, you know, books, articles, uh, whatever we're producing in the name of research. I want to share a personal academic horror story about my own intellectual journey, uh, which I've actually never talked about. Um, when I entered graduate school, um, I wanted to be a researcher. That's why I went to, to, to a, a PhD program. There were certain ideas I wanted to study about educational inequality and school organization. And I actively avoided opportunities to be a teaching assistant. Uh, the program I was in did have some undergraduate courses that employed TAs that was low status. I didn't have any interest in it. I didn't do it. Then of course, I became a faculty member and I regretted not having learned from the experience of being a teaching assistant and had to confront the fact that I knew nothing about how to teach. So I think that, that there are these entrenched ideas, uh, sometimes artificial, about the, the um, uh, separation of research and teaching. And I think Anna, through her work across the course of her career has shown that faculty can learn a great deal about their subjects of study from their teaching. But again, it's an idea that is not familiar to a lot of people. And there certainly are status structures. So in a research university, you know, research productivity it, um, is the point of the realm and teaching quality uh, is, is uh, um, paid a minimal attention to. That's a cultural issue, I think, that requires a lot of attention. 
Wow, thank you, Erin. I think that's our first true confession in this podcast. So <laughs> I'm happy you felt safe sharing that. But I also, I, I really appreciate the calling out at the end of the cultural norming of valuing research over teaching uh, that is endemic in the academy. And even in schools, which you might think are more geared towards really serving the students of particular communities, say, you know, your regional state colleges, places like that. It has even infiltrated those places. And, you know, sometimes at the cost of instructors' time to really focus on the teaching that is supposed to be their primary mission because of some sense that they're all these schools must be in this race to research and research productivity. So I think that's a really important, maybe other thing to think about as we were talking about impactful changes to <laughs> um, higher education uh, going forward. So I think I want to close with um, a final question. I think the three of us have been working hard in this realm for many years and trying to change higher education, leave it a better place, perhaps, from our work. And I wonder, you know, sometimes it's tough going. Um, in my experience, you know, you can feel defeated sometimes, I think. But I wonder what it is that keeps you both inspired and that motivates you to keep doing this work in higher education. Well, I'll start. Um, Lana will laugh at this, but you know, there's a, a familiar cartoon of um, uh, a guy sitting in front of a computer keyboard saying, I can't go to sleep. Someone's wrong on the internet. And it's a, a joke about sort of feeling an obligation to respond to everything wrong that you see in the world. There's a bit of that, I think, in me where I've, I've come to understand that there are things that I think are beliefs uh, that are mistaken that I want to do my part to help uh, correct. And that's related to, a broad, I think, a broader sense of, of uh, social justice in the world as well. Um, so that's, I think, one of the things that motivates me is seeing how much better I think things could be and wanting to work at that, in part by debunking things that demonstrably are not true about uh, our education system and its relationship to the broader society in which we live. So when things get get really hard for me um, and when I feel defeated, um, I try to put the brakes on and ask myself, why am I doing this? Uh, but why am I doing it? And uh, one of the, the first response that comes to mind because it really is the core response, is uh, you need to understand that um, I'm a first-generation learner. I know that phrase gets used a lot, but neither of my parents even had high school. Uh, we are an immigrant family. Both of my parents were refugees and Holocaust survivors. Um, uh, and learning for me was everything. Learning was where I went to become a person. 
Um, and uh, when I ask myself what, why I'm doing this, it's partly as recalling what learning was to me and a desire to make learning more available, more open, and more meaningful to so many other people who I think are looking for the same experience. Uh, I think of teaching not as something separate from learning. For me, teaching is the advancement, support, propelling, enriching of people's learning. And so I go to teaching as that second part of what I believe in, which is that part of my role, part of the reason that I'm here is in fact to help find people, find spaces where they can learn and grow and become. That is incredibly moving, Anna, and thank you for that story. It certainly gives me a lot to think about on the days when I feel like I just want to pack it in and give it up. Um, both of you, thank you for sharing those motivations and, and the ways in which you keep yourself engaged in this work. And thank you for the work that you do. Um, I appreciate that you've taken this time to talk with us, um, the ways in which you've shared your work and your deep thinking that I hope will help move higher education to a new place. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website where you can find any resources mentioned in the episode, ctl.columbia.edu backslash podcast. Please like us, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Dead Ideas in Teaching and Learning is a product of Columbia University Center for Teaching and Learning and is produced by Stephanie Ogden, Laura Nicholas, A.B. Seidel, and John Hanford. Production support from Kate Ty Piggott. Our theme music is In the Lab by Immersive Music.